starting in verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers in an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift which you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. The word of the Lord. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you. Father, you are our good shepherd. Because of that, there is nothing we need. Father, you provide us what we need, when we need it, and the amount that we need. But Father, we confess as sheep who are so easily vulnerable to disease, to predators, and then to our own foolishness, Father, we fear. We fear what's in the horizon. We fear what's in our past, what's in our future. We fear because we are vulnerable, we are limited, and we have little knowledge. But we confess you are a God who is wise, you are a God who is powerful, and you are a God who is good, and you care for your sheep. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your protection that you provide your people. Not just physical protection, but their greatest need, which is our spiritual protection. Lord, you did not lead us, leave us in the emptiness and the, uh, our struggle in sin, but you came as a man, fully God, fully man, to redeem us, to save us from our sin at great cost. As the good shepherd, you laid down your life for your sheep. And Father, you are a victorious shepherd, a victorious king. And we praise and thank you that you rose again. You defeated and conquered our greatest enemy. And you reign victoriously over all creation. Father, as we come to you, you're a God who is king, a wise and loving king. Father, you provide what we need. We pray for our brothers and sisters who are struggling with illness. Father, we especially go before the throne of grace on behalf of our brother Dave Curry. Father, you are a good shepherd and you care for him, for his body, and for his soul. You feed him what he needs. May we be faithful as a congregation to love he and Pat well. Father, we also come on behalf of the Rawson family as they 
grieve the loss of Frank, but Lord, they rejoice that his hope is now sight as he sees his good shepherd face to face. Father, may his life be a reminder not only to Belinda of finishing well, but to all of us how our hope is not in deliverance from this world, but in deliverance unto the world to come of a kingdom where our good shepherd reigns. Father, we also pray for the Moon family. As uh, Jesse is making strides and recovering, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen her body. I pray for Emily as she cares and loves her daughter, for Caleb, Rainey, and Father Ryder, that you would provide them and comfort them. You are their good shepherd. Father, there are so many requests for loved ones who are ill, for loved ones for their needs, for those who are prevented from being with us this morning. We lift all of them up before you. You know their names, you know their needs, and you know how you are working. Father, we especially come before you on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Haiti for the nation of Haiti that for so many generations has just been oppressed and exploited and they need the gospel. Father, we pray that you would work in the hearts of the people, their valid frustrations and anger, Lord, and rise up leaders who will have integrity and self-sacrifice and not be self-serving to lead that people towards um, deliverance from their uh, temporal needs. But Father, we pray for the churches and the believers in Haiti that not just to address the physical needs, but their greatest need, their need for Christ who brings us peace with God. Father, we come to you and we ask that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you that you hear our prayers. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. If you're not already there, turn to uh, 1 Timothy, chapter 6, or no, wait, chapter 4. We uh, are going to continue our series where we're looking at shepherds and the shepherds of the church, elders that the Lord has uh, equipped and raised up within a local congregation to pastor. Uh, We understand that they're called different things, elders, overseers, uh, uh, pastors, but they are all names for one office. We have seen how uh, the qualifications, what is the a spiritual makeup of one who is called to be a pastor, a shepherd, an elder of the church. We've seen the importance and the commandment of a plurality of shepherds, uh, both those who are devoted and receive their income from the church and those who receive their income as, as laity from other sources, but all of them a plurality of elders leading the congregation with different personalities and different strengths and different uh, experiences and and places in life. And today we turn to really the the call of the shepherds, the conduct of the shepherds. 
I came across a book uh, by Dr. Tim Laniak, one of my professors. I don't know if Scott ever had him. He was at Gordon-Conwell, and he took a year sabbatical and lived in, with the Bedouin shepherds in Israel. And it was amazing all the things he learned just of living amongst the shepherd. And he came across uh, in his study an account from Wales. Now, Wales is in the UK. It's not Israel, uh, you know, different place. But the shepherding concept uh, goes across. And this is what he writes. He's uh, quoting this book. This is an account of a shepherd's life. He says, My mother, a hill farmer of consummate skill, is still amazed at the ways and the variety of ways that a sheep can find to die. Even the hardy Welsh mountain breed which, with which it brought up and these susceptible to braxy, pulpy kidneys, staggers, pneumonia, pastorella, twin lamb disease, cancer, hypothermia in the winter, maggots in the su su summer, scab, scraby, foxes, crows, and dogs. They push their heads through fences and get stuck. They climb trees to picket foliage and get hung up by the horns or by their legs. They fall down banks, get bitten by snakes, and stung by wasps. They tumble into ponds and streams. They gorge themselves on fallen ash leaves, roll on their backs, and blow up like balloons. They poison themselves with ragwort, Ram's horns regularly grow into their own heads. They starve, they freeze, they get depressed and fall ill. But a good shepherd can counter every affliction. It's amazing how, shall I say, stupid sheep are. And it is probably an apt analogy when the Lord Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I take care of my sheep. But there's a very important line in that documentation and that is that uh, being shepherd is hard work, but they're equipped with everything they need to do. Being a shepherd is hard, especially of the shepherd of the flock of God. But the shepherds who are devoted to the gospel have everything they need to counter every affliction. If you're not there, go, again, go to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Paul is writing to Timothy, who was an elder in the city of Ephesus, and he's writing to him how he can be a faithful shepherd of the flock what he is supposed to do, how he's supposed to conduct his life in order to be a faithful shepherd. And notice verse 6 of chapter 4 in Timothy. If you put these things before the brothers, the gospel, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. You could uh, replace servant there with you will be a good shepherd to the flock, being trained in the words of the faith and of good doctrine that you have followed. The shepherds of the flock are not alone to try to figure it out themselves. They have been equipped with everything they need for every affliction that their flock faces because they have the gospel. The gospel that reveals to us the nature of God, a God who is holy and righteous. The gospel that reveals the nature of man, sinful. Though we are created in the image of God, we are sinful and fallen. And then we have the gospel that reveals the means to salvation, which is through, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
And then we are also in the gospel given the instructions of how to live our lives. If you were to take the gospel and to summarize it into four words, you've heard me say this many, many times, but I have to repeat it again and again and again. You can say the gospel boils down to four words. God, man, Jesus, response. God is the maker of all things. He is a creator of heaven and earth, as the Apostles' Creed that we quote says. He is maker of all things that are good and beautiful and true. And he has designed his image bearers and created his world to find their significance and purpose in him and that we in our lives would find joy in pursuing him. But man, the second word, we realize that be, even though we are created in the image of God, rather than following God and finding our significance in Him, living for His glory and for our pleasure, we have traded the glory of an infinite God for our own glory. We have said, I don't want God in charge. I know better. I am the captain of my own soul. I am the master of my fate. And that is called sin, not being or doing what the Lord has revealed to us in his law. God, man, Jesus. Because of the great love that the Father has, he sent his only Son. Though justly could have left man in their sin and received their punishment, he so loved the world that God, the Word, became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Fully God and fully man. He taught us of the kingdom and the, what it means to know the heart of God, but he laid down his life as a substitute for, the, for sinful creatures who deserve the wrath of God. He lived a righteous life, but he took the penalty for unrighteous people. The good news doesn't, the gospel doesn't stop there, God, man, Jesus, but there's also the fourth word, which is response. We must repent and believe. Repent it means to turn away from our self-love, our self-worth, our self-living, our self-glory. Repent of those things and say, God, I am not living the way that you have designed for your glory, and I turn and believe the promises of God. The promises that say two things. That one, when Jesus died on the cross, he was my substitute and he took my sin. And when I stand before God, I receive a righteousness that did not begin with me and doesn't belong with me, but I wrap myself in the righteousness of Jesus. And when God saw Jesus on the cross, he didn't see Jesus, he saw me. And now when I stand before God, he doesn't see my sin and my inadequacies and how far I've fallen. He sees Jesus. And I say, I belong to Jesus. I'm with him. Not by what we've done, not by our potential, not by our grandma who used to teach Sunday school for 60 years, not by the evangelist signing our Bible, not by any prayer creed that we recite, but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is the gospel. God, man, Jesus responds. And the gospel is sufficient for everything that ails the flock. Though we don't often think it is. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, though the world seizes its foolishness. I am not ashamed, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, who repents and believes. 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This, this plan of salvation that is revealed in the heart of Scripture. The gospel not only brings salvation to the flock, but the gospel preserves the flock and brings the flock into the presence of our God. But the flock is not alone. And the sheep are not alone. The flock is given under shepherds. A plurality of shepherds, Christ-like shepherds who are sheep themselves to lead and to guide the sheep together. Little flocks of sheep bringing them to the presence of our good shepherd. And as we will see today in our big idea, good shepherds counter every affliction. How? Not by their wit, not by their charisma, not by their intelligence. I'm 0 for 3. Fortunately, by devoting themselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Good shepherds counter every affliction by devoting the flock to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see three ways that that happens. One, by putting their hope in the gospel, by putting their, basing their lives on the gospel, and by growing in the gospel. Not just the shepherds themselves, but the, the flock as well. Following the model, following the example. They hope, they live, and they grow in the gospel. So notice in verses 7 through 11, the hope that is in the gospel in verse 7. The hope of the gospel. My parents can attest to this. When I was in high school, I ate like a horse. Um, I had a steady diet of double bacon cheeseburgers with french fries and like a 42-ounce Coke. And I could put that down right after school, and then I would go home, and I would um, eat dinner. And that after dinner, it wasn't uncommon for me to fix a bowl of cereal. And I, I really, my metabolism was on fire. And uh, I can put that down. I could put the food down. Uh, the, I would shove my gullet with greasy foods and French fries, and with, loaded with cholesterol and with trans fats, and it didn't take long to get married and for my metabolism to begin to slow down and my arteries begin to clog. Until I got the wake-up call at age 35 and when the doctor at Baptist said, you have had a heart attack. That's a wake-up call. When you have to realize, I must change my ways and change my diet, though I'm not always real good at it, admittedly. Uh, no, I won't move. Well, that, was a, that was a rabbit trail I was going down, but I just would stay with the manuscript, stay with the manuscript. But I realized that in all of us, if we don't change our diet, it will kill us. Uh, it will eventually, and we will feel bad, and we w it will have adverse effects on us. Likewise, in the flock and the most powerful repertoire, uh, tool in, often in Satan's repertoire is to gorge people with empty spiritual calories and nutrient-deficient doctrine known as, as we see in verse 7, irreverent, silly myths. Irreverent, silly myths are the fast food, cholesterol-filled, trans fat garbage junk food of the spiritual war may and it makes people full when in reality they are slowly destroying themselves bite after bite after bite 
Notice what Paul says. He says, avoid a reverent silly miss. He's speaking to Timothy, but we can all learn from this because we want to see what our shepherds are supposed to be doing and then in following them through. Have nothing to do with a reverent silly miss. And again, irreverent silly myths are gospel-deficient, doctrine-emptied calories that often sound good, or maybe as we walk by the fast food place, they smell good, but in reality, they kill us slowly. Now, there are silly things. We live in a world full of myths. Uh, old wives' tales, no offense to old wives, black cats crossing our path, walking under a ladder, never opening an umbrella inside. If you've ever done that, just to look at the, fa- the, the look on people's faces and just watch the reaction, it's great. And um, what it does, silly myths are powerless to change our lives, knock on wood. But uh, they are granted credence every day because we think about it and we, we say, oh, we have to do that. Never. Oh, there's a black cat. Let me swerve out of the way into oncoming traffic because I might get bad luck. They divert our attention from the important things to what? To the trivial things. To the things that don't matter. And the longer you fill your soul with the greasy fried foods of irreverent, irreverent silly myth, you are destroying yourself bite by bite. Now, Irreverent silly myths are not always as blatant as a Lucky's rabbit's foot, which was not lucky for the rabbit, or find a penny, pick it up, and all day you'll have good luck. Irreverent silly myths can be translated this, godless ideas and old wives' tales. The New Living Translation does that. Godless ideas, and that's really, really important. Godless ideas are not simply atheistic ideas, but teaching in the church that focuses a person on themselves and what they can do or they must do instead of focusing that person on God and what he has done, who he is, and what he will do. You see the difference there? Irreverent silly myths are taking the focus off of God, who is the creator of heaven and earth, the source of all that is good, righteous, beautiful, and holy, all-powerful, all-knowing, and we focus on things that we have to do. Let me give you an example. Buzzwords or instructions. Work smarter, be nicer, try harder. Buzzwords. Destiny. Purpose. Uh, relevant. I hate the word relevant. It's such a good word and it's been hijacked by so many people. We have relevant preaching. Well, I, I think relevant preaching is taking the word of God and showing how it makes a difference in your life. But relevant preaching, preaching is like seven steps to a better dad or how to, three ways to forgive. That's, rever, that's relevant, but that takes the focus off of God and shows these are the one, two, three steps that you have to do. Here's some other self-centered focus and man-centered priorities. Teaching how to unlock your destiny. Seven steps to your best life now. It's been on the New York Times bestseller by Guy Smiley down in Houston for a long time. It's nothing more than the power of positive thinking repackaged with, with a sticker of God on it. Reality is it's devoid of the gospel, but it has buzzwords buzzwords like God and salvation and blessing and and, 
uh, things like that, promise, sermons that preach positive thinking, self-reliance, and self-focus rather than on knowing Christ and conforming to his kingdom and his priorities is focusing on irreverent, silly myths. Ocean Park, let me ask you, why should a congregation crave, what should a congregation crave instead of the spiritual trans fats of irreverent, silly myths? They should crave godliness. Notice it says, he continues, train yourself for godliness. We are called to lay aside the godless, man-centered myths that plague our churches and strive for lives that are shaped by the gospel. Godliness is gospel-centered living. Godliness is, as John Stott uh, defined, correct religious beliefs, starts in your head, understanding the truth claims of Scripture, and having attitudes and behaviors that reflect that. Start by who God is, who we are, what God has done, and how we are called to respond, and then our lives will come in order and be ordered and, and calibrated by what, who God is and what he has done. Let me give you an example. Stott says this, Godly people are God-fearing people. They have experienced the Copernium Revolution, that's like big changes here, of Christian conversion from self-centeredness, it's all about me, it's the Chris show, the world revolves around me. This Capernaum figured out, hey, we don't revolve around, the, or the sun doesn't revolve around us, we revolve around the sun. See the difference there? From self-centered, oh, it's all about me, to God-centeredness, it's all about God. Previously, or previously it could be said of them that in all their thoughts there is no room for God because I am at the altar of my heart, but now they say I have set the Lord always before me. I want to honor him in my thought, in my words, in my deeds. They have heard God's call to renounce ungodliness, repent, and to live a godly life, to follow because of what Jesus has done, not to follow to earn ourselves and earn our righteousness and earn our place, Jesus has done it all. It is finished. And now I respond to that and anticipate on earth a God-centered life of heaven which is dominated uh, by God's throne. A Christian is called to discipline their hearts, minds, and bodies towards God-centeredness. The same way that athletes uh, discipline their bodies for competition. They run laps. They eat certain food. They get the right amount of sleep. Why? Because they want to do more than their opponent on the other side of the ball. Because they want to beat them. So they discipline their body for the end game. Physicians discipline their minds for diagnosis and their hands for treatment. They study long hours and continue study. Why? Because they want to be able to be good physicians. Musicians discipline their hands or their mouths or whatever you do use to play your instrument to be able to perform the music peak. Long hours when uh, some of you musicians, your friends were playing in the neighborhood and you were at the piano or wherever working on your chords. You discipline your hands for the performance. This is the very thing that Christians are called to do, and this is how it begins with the elders. It begins with the shepherds, who are every flock leading the flock away from the thorns and the thistles that will destroy them 
to lush pastures. They can feast on green grass of gospel-rich doctrine. Avoid irreverent, silly myths and train yourself for godliness. Notice verse 10. For this end we toil and we strive because we have our hope set on the living God. Our hope is not in the end, I hope it all shakes out, that my righteousness side of the scale is higher than my unrighteousness side. I hope that I've done enough or shown my potential or said enough penance or done enough, uh, 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 walked in men enough aisles and prayed enough prayers to be able to be good with God. My hope is not in anything I have done, but in the nature and the heart of God, that he is gracious and he is merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And because he so loved the world, he sent his son. And that is my hope. Ocean Park, we need a plurality of shepherds who toil and strive towards godliness in their personal life because they have set their hope on the living God. Their focus, and they're setting the example for the flock because their focus is not on their self, their focus is on Christ. Their instruction is not what they can do, but what uh, Christ has done. Their teaching is not steps to a better life, it's fearing and loving God in heart, mind, and soul. Good shepherds constantly remind themselves and the flock that this, this simple and profound truth, we have set our hope on the living God, not on godless, silly myths. We serve a sovereign God who so loved us that he sent his son that whosoever believes in him, what he has, who he is and what he has done shall not perish, but have everlasting life, the essence of the gospel. Ocean Parks, our hearts naturally crave the greasy, fat, fast foods of irreverent, silly myths. Therefore, we need shepherds to remind us of the hope in the gospel, for a good shepherd can counter every affliction by devoting the flock to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only are we called to hope in the gospel, but we're also called to live by the gospel. In verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Now, what do you think of when you hear this verse? You think of every youth Sunday ever that they, they preach this. And every like theme verse of a youth group is this verse. And uh, we quote this verse wisely to teenagers. Don't let anybody look down on you and young, but, but set an example. The, but when you realize the context, what is the context? Paul, a senior citizen, writing to a guy, most likely Timothy, in his mid-30s. He's writing to Timothy to be able to say, don't, he says two things, don't let them despise you for your youth and set an example. These are commands, imperatives that he's giving them. Why does this happen? Why does one generation look down on the other generation? Think of every meme of millennials you have ever seen. Nobody's like, man, the millennials are great. Uh, they're usually d d dumping on the millennials. Boomers did it to Gen X, Gen X did it to Millennials, Millennials are like waiting for the next generation to be like, oh, you're going to get it. We're, this is payback. 
But sometimes there is youth can be despised for valid reasons. Youth often means immaturity. Uh, disrespect, re, re, uh, rebellion, self-absorption, absorption, uh, conforming to peer pressures, indifference to serious issues, and a fixation on the only things that satisfy that person. And there's immaturity that happens with youth, as some, I don't remember who it is, it says youth is wasted on the young. But there's also invalid reasons. And I find in churches so much of not the problem with the younger generations, but it's a problem with the older generations. I call it, I didn't come up with the term, chronological snobbery. If you don't act like me and like what I want and do what I want and listen to my music and do and these things, you're not good enough. If you're not old enough and you haven't been through my generation, you're not good enough. And what it's happening is it's making the standard for the gospel in life not the gospel. It's making the standard my preferences and things that I like. And if you do, oh, the, the, these kids these days. They don't even write in cursive, heaven's sakes. Oh, good night. And, we, and then all this litany of things. But the reality is not are the generations the like because there's a huge generational gap between all the generations. But what happens is it's the gospel that transcends the generations. We have a multi-generational church not because everybody thinks the building is great or I'm great or everything, they love the color of the pews. The reason that we have multi-generation is why? Because we love the gospel. And the gospel is what joins them together. So Timothy is told by Paul, don't let them despise you. Don't give them what they want. Don't play into their stereotypes. What you are to do is to set an example to them so that the 85-year-old woman can look at the teenage girl and say, that girl is a godly girl, period. Not for her age. She's a godly girl. And the, the senior citizen man can look at the man in his 30s and say, that is a godly man, period. There's no qualifiers. It's are they godly. Set an example. And he gives five ways to be able to do that. The first one is this. Set an example in your speech. Paul writes in Colossians, which we just finished, but now you must put them all away. The, the deeds of the flesh. And what is the, one of the first ways the deeds of the flesh manifest themselves? Notice, anger through the mouth. Wrath through the mouth, malice through the mouth, slander through the mouth, obscene uh, 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 thoughts and perverted ideas. How do they come out? Through the mouth. Put them away. Set an example no matter how old you are. Another way that Paul writes a few chapters later, let your speech always be gracious, reflecting the attitude of Christ seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Don't be obnoxious. Don't be aggressive. Don't try to throw your weight around. Don't try to impose your will on other generations. Set an example in how you speak. May the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O gracious Heavenly Father, the psalmist said. He also, Paul says, not only in speech but in conduct. The lifestyle of a faithful shepherd brings forth the fruit of the Spirit. 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The conduct, how a shepherd, regardless of their age, lives, should be bringing forth and bearing forth the fruit so that every generation, whether older or younger, can look to the shepherd and say, they are conducting themselves to the glory of God, a gospel-centered life. In our speech, in our conduct, and in our love. A faithful shepherd lives self-sacrificially. Their life is not their own. I belong to Jesus who has redeemed me and bought me with a price. Therefore, he calls me to go out and do his work, to seek first his kingdom, and then he'll take care of my little kingdom and my needs. They serve, their love serves as an example to the flock. In speech, in conduct, in love, and in faith. A faithful shepherd holds firmly to the promises of God. And you know that because when the rain comes down and the floods comes up, they have built their house on the rock and it stands firm. And they are an example to all generations. Speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. Shepherds lead a sincere and blameless life, not a perfect life because all have sinned, but a blameless life, a life that is above reproach, as Timothy earlier in Titus writes. They are to be trustworthy and steadfast. You look to your shepherds and you know they're not working their angles and they're not trying to manipulate the flock for their own personal benefit. They're living a life of purity and above reproach, above legitimate accusation, and their their purity serves as an example to the flock. Paul, and I've had to learn this, and all pastors have to learn this, you cannot make all the people happy all the time. You can't give everybody what they want. But you can give God what he wants. And let him work out the details. Be faithful to the good shepherd and the the sheep will follow. And they will be gracious at times and sometimes the sheep bite. But faithfulness in giving God what he calls us to live and how he calls us to live is the most important. People will call the shepherds godly men, period. Ocean Park shepherds lead by example, not by force. They serve as models who invite their fellow sheep to follow them as they themselves follow the good shepherd. Now let me make a a note, because over the course of the next few uh, weeks, I am asking for names of people that you say, men in our congregation who are already faithfully leading and guiding in this. Now, if you look around, you'll notice we are a mature congregation. Okay, and um, there you all of us must heed the words of Paul. Do not despise anyone for their youth because they're not the greatest generation or they're not boomers or they're not Gen X's or they're millennials. Do not despise them for their youth. Consequently, you can flip it around and say, do not overlook ungodliness because a person is advanced in age or mature or has been around the sun a few times. Ask yourselves, does this man hope in the gospel and demonstrate godliness in his speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity? Does his life reflect the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1? Is he a model to the flock even in his youth and is in his inexperience. Here's the thing, Ocean Park, we can be confident 
that the Holy Spirit, who indwells faithful, youthful shepherds, is able to overcome their inexperience, our generational gaps, and even the chronological snobbery of the flock. Because their hope is set on the gospel, and they're seeking to live their lives by the gospel. A good shepherd can, can counter every affliction by devoting the flock to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is by hoping in the gospel, that is by living by the gospel, and that is by growing in the gospel. Notice Paul continues and uh, he reminds us when we look at the, the background that ta- Timothy was a young man. He was about 35, the very age that I started uh, here at Ocean Park. And he probably, from what we can tell, he struggled with timidity. He wasn't, didn't have the boldness that Paul did, but Paul had to sort of push him. Like, All right, come on. But the stakes for Timothy were far too high for him to be overcome and to be paralyzed with fear. Again, we've um, alluded to Acts 20. Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. I know that after my departure, Paul speaking, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own cells will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. But what will happen is the shepherds of the flock are equipped because when they are devoted and faithful to the gospel, they have everything they need. Last week I was in a... um, hospital visit, and I, whoop, never mind, I'll tell you that in a minute, I got, I got ahead of myself. Paul gives three ways to Timothy how to protect the flock by growing in the gospel, one by power, by progress, and by persistence. Notice verse 13, the power or the authority of the gospel, verse 13, until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Timothy's authority didn't derive from his charisma, his personality, or his education. His authority was based on his faithfulness to the word of God and to the power of the gospel. Therefore, Timothy would protect his flock, even in his youth, by how? By devoting himself to three practices. The public reading of scripture. Amidst, when the assembled congregation would come together, they would read. Men and women and children would hear the word of God and learn the word of God. That honestly was one of the first things we did when I came here. I said, we're going to read, and we're going to read a lot. And I had people say, wow, you read a lot of scripture. And I was like, that verse, look at it, 1 Timothy 4. But we need to hear the word of God because honestly, we are in a day and age when there is a famine for the word of God. It is at our fingertips and our computers and all of this. We have mass produced Bibles everywhere, but we are in a famine of the word of God because people don't hear the word of God. And our churches should be a place where we devote ourselves to the public reading of scripture. It's always been that way in the church. From the first century, Justin Martyr talked about that, uh, reading the, the prophets and the, the apostles. But after reading, putting yourself under the authority of Scripture and the reading, then there is exhortation and teaching. And exhortation is actually, and I don't like to throw Greek words out, but it's a parakletos, and if you hear it, the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete, the comforter. 
And what we're doing with this exhortation is we're preaching the gospel and we're bringing comfort to the people of God because of the promises that the word of God holds. And not only are we to exhort and comfort the people, but we're to impart a knowledge and understanding of Scripture and we're to teach it. Because, brothers and sisters, we have no authority apart from the Word of God. And we read it and we proclaim it and we teach it. Therefore, faithful shepherds then and now cannot protect the flock from irreverent, silly myths if they don't feed the flock of God the Word of God. Shepherds grow by devoting themselves to the power of the gospel. Verse 15, not only do they grow in the power, but in the progress. Verse 15, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Back to the hospital. Last week, uh, I went and visited Jesse in the intensive care, and um, there were all kinds of machines and beeping and fluid bags and all kinds of stuff there. And the nurses would come in and do a quick survey, look at the numbers, interpret everything, hit a button, hit it here, push that, pull that, and immediately everything was okay. And I, because Anna wants to be a nurse, I'm like, holy cow, Anna's going to be doing that someday. That's crazy. Poor patients. Um, but I realized... <laughs> Um, that ability didn't happen overnight. They had to have late nights of study. When all their friends on a Saturday night went out and had fun, nursing students were in front of their books studying the human body, obscure things and Latin things and all kinds of things, memorizing terms and properly spelling those terms because spelling is a big deal reading and doing clinicals and shadowing other nurses and labs and tests after tests after tests after tests. And for you nurses, you know even more of what you had to do to be a good nurse. But good nurses are not just people who have the natural capacities of kindness and compassion, but people who have worked hard and have worked long in their field to master the necessary technical information to comfort people and to keep them alive and to fulfill the physician's orders. Growth is a sign of health and vitality, both in nursing and in the ministry in the flock of Jesus Christ. Shepherds of the the flock must grow for the sake of the flock. Notice what Paul says, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Pastoral ministry, and that's not just me as the full-time paid pastor, but this will for all the shepherds of the flock. Pastoral ministry requires routine trial and improvements. It takes concentration, meditation, action and evaluation constantly going over. Just as an athlete, uh, Andrew, uh, I think Monday afternoons, his football team sits down and they watch video and they break it down ad nauseum. The tackle went this way, the wide receiver went this way, the linebacker went this way, and they watch all that things. And they watch practice of how they, they played and how their opponent plays. And it's a constant uh, working. Musicians, over and over again, they play their bars and play their notes and play their pieces time and time again because practice makes permanence. Practice makes permanence. And the same thing um, that uh, pastors and shepherds must constantly analyze their own life and their own ministry. It can be excruciating at times to know and to feel your inadequacies and weakness under light of scrutiny. 
to have to seriously go back and watch your sermons and watch the video of your sermons. Ask Scott. We've done that together. It's excruciating to do that and to go back and say, I need to be a better communicator because, uh, brothers and sisters, I don't just open up the Bible and say the Lord's going to, the Spirit's going to lead me. Spirit's leading me in my office and the Spirit's leading me here. But I'm working really hard to be a better communicator and to do that. Why? Because the health of the flock is at stake. Shepherds are leaders and examples to the flock. They're not supermen. We're not supermen. Every shepherd must grow in their teaching and grow in their leadership or they are not serving Christ or the flock faithfully. It's reading deep and challenging books, learning theology, learning how to communicate what they're learning to the average person in the pew. It's honing preaching and communication. It's addressing personal weaknesses. It's receiving criticism and constructive criticism. It's cultivating the soul. And what is the end goal? Notice what he says. So that all, the, all may see your progress. The flock should be able to recognize their progress and their effort at strengthening the, themselves as shepherds, and they want to follow the under-shepherds. I've been at Ocean Park for about five years now. I've, if I preach upwards of 50 sermons a year, give or take, that's about 250 sermons some of you uh, long-timers have endured at times. Um, I remember... And I, listen, I work at it. I try to be a, a faithful communicator and do all of that. And about a year ago, Miss Vivian pulled me aside. She probably doesn't even remember this. And she just grabbed me by the hand and she said, Chris, you have improved so much. And, and, and it's not to, a prideful thing. It's that there's a lot of time and effort and late nights and and agony and struggling, realizing that you're not sufficient to say, thus saith the Lord. And when a faithful sister in Christ who has loved Jesus for many decades sees, I see you're getting better. Keep doing it. You got a long way to go, kid, but you're getting better. <laughs> that is such an encouragement to be able to do that. And we realize all of us are getting better and strengthening and becoming more like Jesus. And as much grace as you have given me as a pastor, we give one another. And we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be, um, you name Spurgeon or Piper or Keller or all the big shooters who preach and that's all they do. But faithful people week to week who do hospital visits and try to open it up and feed the flock to grow and advance in those things. Shepherds grow by progressing in the practice of the gospel. And then also not only the power and the, the progress, but the persistence. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourselves and on the teaching Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. The threats of the flock are not only from the obvious wolves that are lurking in the shadows amongst the tree line, but wolves also who are wrapping themselves with the wolf's uh, skin. But also the dangers and the complacencies are in the hearts of the shepherds. From sloth, and complacency in pride that distract the shepherds from what they're supposed to be doing. The stakes are too high to be distracted. 
Complacency allows the shepherd's blind spots to grow and to dominate. Sloth causes the shepherd to disregard the priorities of the gospel. Pride leads the shepherd to to contradict the heart of the gospel, and it's to the detriment of the flock. It's very easy to lose perspective and drift as a shepherd, to put it into overdrive, put it into neutral, and just try to trust your natural abilities. But if you do that, you will do harm to the sheep. Your strengths attract people, and praise can cause you to to gradually grow out of alignment, and it fosters pride that goes against the heart of the gospel. Therefore, a disciplined shepherd is a watchful shepherd, constantly watching for threats to the flock, the blatant ones and the subtle ones, the threats from within, without and within, irreverent silly myths that are coming in through books and internet and radio and just blatant heresies, predators of the flock and self-inflicted wounds of the sheep. If shepherds are faithful to protect the flock with the gospel and feed the flock with the gospel and declare that salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, they will ensure the salvation of the flock. Shepherds grow by persistence on their dependence on the gospel. Um, as a, a shepherd, when you have... Let me just read here what Dr. Laniac says... Contagious diseases such as foot foot rot and sore mouth and lockjaw and pneumonia present great health risks. A scabby goat will infect the whole herd, says an Arab proverb. Good shepherds have to constantly alert for animals that become lame or listless or exhibit lumps or lesions, sores or swellings. It really wants you to, to sign up to be a shepherd, doesn't it? Nurses, you probably know what this feels like to be a shepherd. They need to check ears... Uh, ears, eyes, mouths, nose, hoofs, monitor weight loss, examine feces. They must recognize the earliest symptoms of a variety of diseases, especially that can spread through a flock within hours. Otherwise, they'll watch helplessly as their treasured assets collapse. One young shepherd confessed his sense of of complicity after a lethal epidemic. We lost a lot of ewes. It was discouraging. We thought we were killing them. Only an attentive and knowledgeable shepherd is competent to counter every affliction. And then Dr. Laniac says this, What strikes me in all of these um, procedures is that shepherding requires touch. It might be running their hands along the spine, lifting the eyelids, or pulling back the ears. It might be rubbing oil or applying a, um, a balm of some sort. Whatever the condition, the shepherd simply can't stand at a distance. They need to touch the sheep. Each night the sheep must pass under the shepherd's rod, as it says in Ezekiel, to be individually checked for signs of illness, wounds, or weight loss. Such preventative, precautionary, proactive members measures only happen with direct physical conduct, contact. We need Ocean Park shepherds who are involved in the lives of their sheep. Even a small congregation like ours, I can't do it alone. We need a plurality of elders and shepherds who will come alongside and to love the flock and protect the flock and feed the flock. To lead an example to the flock and live out the gospel and grow in the gospel and trust in the gospel with all of their hearts because a good shepherd counters every affliction by devoting the flock to the gospel of Jesus Christ.